Um, you know, as we read every week Genesis chapter 3, we read the story of what unfolded in the Garden of Eden. And I know I look at the story many times and, and ask many questions about it. Uh, you know, the first week we started on the series, I asked the question of why didn't Jesus just eliminate sin completely? Um, and then I look at it even further and I ask the question of why did this mistake have such an impact on us? But, you know, the, the bigger picture that we can often fail to see is not why do we have to go through what we're going through, but to look at it and say, why did the enemy want to sabotage us so bad? When we change our perspective of what happened in Genesis 3, it helps us be better equipped to face what we see in everyday life. The wrestling that Paul went through, which is what this series is based off of, when he says, I want to do good things, but I can't, I need help because sin is sabotaging my life. And when we understand what happened in the garden was the enemy's attempt to sabotage us from a fellowship with our creator, then we can know how to tackle things better. You know, a year ago, <clears throat> maybe a little more than that, what some consider the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, not named Tim Tebow, uh, retired from football, uh, Peyton Manning. And whenever they would, when he had retired and they would evaluate his tapes, they were like, well, he's not the fastest run, uh, quarterback we've ever seen. He doesn't throw it the furthest of any quarterback we've ever seen. He doesn't throw it the hardest of any quarterback we've ever seen. And he's not necessarily the most accurate quarterback we've ever seen. So none of those attributes are what makes him such a great quarterback. But what he did was he would spend hours and hours and hours studying the film. And so when Peyton Manning walked up to the line of scrimmage, ready to call the play, when he could look at the defense, he could pinpoint the exact play they needed to run to counteract that. And what I think this series is, in my opinion, is to allow us to be the Peyton Mannings of our faith. To know that when something happens in our life, there's a greater purpose behind it. That the emotional things I go through is not the cause of somebody else. That it's the enemy sabotage in my life. And today we're going to look at the physical sabotage of sin in our life. And when we go through these things, the hope is that we don't blame everything, but we blame the enemy. Let's pray, God. Thank you this morning for what you've done, God, for the blessing that you've already have flowing in here through the music. And, and God, we ask that your spirit continue through the remainder of our time together, that you continue to challenge our hearts. Lord, help us to see the enemy for who he is. When attacks happen in our life, that we can pinpoint and overcome through your spirit. So today, God, I pray for each and every person here, whatever circumstances or obstacles they're facing, that today they would find deliverance at the foot of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would just be so real here today, and we'll give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past few days, I uh, started an adventure of, of cleaning my kids' bedrooms. And I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a lot of work. And, and what I was amazed is the most random things I would find in my kids' room. Yesterday when I was cleaning out from under something, because kids love to clean their room by shoving things under it. Like I remember when I was a kid, I shoved everything under my bed. Uh, my kids shove it in places. You're like, why would you even do that? And, and so I'm, I'm cleaning out those places. And I found a two-liter bottle of root beer that my kids, I guess, have been chugging on for I don't know how long in their bedroom. I thought, this is the most random thing. And, and I found a box that one of my kids had hidden. And I'm not going to tell you it's Elisha because he gets upset about that stuff. But he'd hidden this box in his room that had so much candy in it that trick-or-treaters would be upset. And he had just been snacking out of this box for I don't know how long. 
And all this random stuff was crazy to me. I thought, who, who does this stuff? I also learned another valuable lesson this morning when I woke up and my feet hit the floor. That hard work comes with a lot of pain. I was sore in places that I didn't even use yesterday, and I'm not sure why that would happen. And, and I don't know if you've ever done things where maybe you're in a garden and, and it's constantly up and down, up and down, and, and it's kind of like a squat motion. And, and if you've ever done that before, you know the next day is one of the worst, worst days of your life. I've never given birth to kids, but I do believe that the pain that's in your legs is probably worth it, worse than bearing a child. And so I woke, up the next, I woke up this morning with pain all through my hamstrings, and I thought, this is incredible. I don't know why I'm going through this. And if you've went through that, you know that your legs are like rubber the next day, you know? And you walk almost like a drunk person or like a cool person. Whatever, you know, the way people walk today is the same thing. And so I was walking funny like that, and I thought, why does pain have to always be escorted in by work, right? Sometimes you want to do something and wake up the next day feeling accomplished and not sore. Well, we find the answer to that and what God dishes out as punishment in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the verse we used last week. Now to this week. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth uh, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for which you were taken out of. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's a recurring word in that little block of scripture. I don't know if you see it. It's pain. Right? And so we find that the result of sin is that now we experience something that we never had to face before, which is called pain. From the moment a child is born until your last breath, all of us experience pain. And pain is the physical effect of sin that we can readily see every single day. And that's what I want to spend time talking about today is the physical sabotage that sin has placed on our life. And so instead of being able to enjoy creation as God had intended for us to do, we now work. And that work brings about physical pain and physical effects. Think about it this way. I love basketball. And if somebody decided we were going to play basketball right now and I didn't have sneakers, I would need to somehow obtain a pair of 11, size 11 sneakers. But if somebody said, all I have is a size 10 well, I know that that probably wouldn't be the most comfortable game I could ever play. But if I force my foot into that, regardless, rest assured that I would feel pain immediately and for the remainder of that day. Even probably blisters, which would even go further than that. And I give you this example because what I had done was try to fit something big, my foot into something small. When I try to put something too big into something too small, Pain is eventually going to show up. So sin is accepting something less than our good, ever-present God had designed for us. Both sins and mistakes, they cause trouble. But both of those are not similar things. 
A mistake is this unintentional action caused by really our own ignorance. We do things because we don't know that we're not supposed to do it. That's what mistakes are. And mistakes come with consequences. If I don't know that I'm supposed to cross a road, and I do and I get hit by a car, I didn't do that intentionally, but it still comes with a, with a, with a price that I have to pay for the mistake. But sin is something completely different. Sin is this conscious course of wrongdoing, meaning that I know it's wrong, but I continue to do it. Today I want to talk about two different physical pains. One is the natural physical pain that each one of us experience as a part of what Adam did. It's our inherited sin that we received from Adam. But I also want to talk about the effects of sin that we bring upon ourselves and those physical effects that we have to go through. So the sabotage of sin brought about a sabotage of us physically. And so God created this perfect place for us to live in constant connection with Him. That's the beauty of what the Garden of Eden was. It has nothing to do with how green and gorgeous it was to the eye. It has everything to do with this constant connection that Adam and Eve had with God. The most devastating result that happened in the Garden of Eden was their disconnection with God. And for us, the most devastating thing we face now and for eternity as a result of sin is a dis disconnection with God. There's nothing else. Like, physically when I hurt, that sucks. But to be dis uh, disconnected from God is an everlasting thing. And so when sin sabotaged us, the disconnection from God was the most brutal thing that came out of it. A separation further magnified by this physical effect that we now feel a sabotage on our life. Those times that we're in, in pain brings about a desire to remain disconnected because prayer it's too hard. And that's how sin begins to sabotage our lives physically. Prayer is too hard when I'm feeling the effects of sin. Picking up my Bible to read involves an effort that I do not have because of the, the sabotage of the physical effects of sin on my life. Fellowshipping with others means putting on a smile that I cannot muster because it hurts too bad when I see people. And that's how Sly the devil was when he deceived Adam and Eve. His whole goal was to sabotage God's creation to be disconnected from him. And he wanted to prove that I can rule them. Like, you, God, you didn't see me as the ruler I thought I was in heaven, so I'm going to prove to you as the God of this world, which is what Paul relates to him as, I want to prove to you that I can do this. And so his sabotage was disconnection from God. And that pain only magnifies that sabotage when I feel too hurt and too physically unable to do the things that connect me back with God. And so sin continues to sabotage our, sabotage our life by the pain that it brings. Not only about these natural effects but of, of it, but also these consequential effects that each one of us face as well. If you commit adultery, the physical effect is that your marriage will end. Right? If you murder someone, the physical effect of sin that you will find is you're going to be in prison probably for the rest of your life. If you lie to someone, the physical effect that you feel from that sin is a fractured trust between the person that you lied to. Sin sabotages us, it seems like, on every corner. It sabotages me with the pain that I feel because I'm just a human. And it sabotages me through the sin that I create in my own life. Why all these physical effects and, and what are we to learn from them? 
When I woke up this morning and my feet hit the ground and I was in pain, I was like, all right, God, what are you trying to teach me from this? Because all I know is it hurts. And when I go through things, even physically as a result of my own sin, God, why are you trying to teach me through this? Because it hurts so bad. The pain from work and from the ground, the physical effects of our sin, all of this is to move our dependency on God and to remind us what the cost of sin truly is. It's too easy to see Jesus hanging on the cross and go, that's nothing, right? Because we've seen it so much. We walk into a church and we see a cross and we go, that's nothing. We see it all the time. And at Easter time is the only time we really highlight it. But the cost of sin is around us every single day. At 2 o'clock this morning when lightning was striking and the, and the ground was shaking from thunder and rain was pounding your house, that's the physical effects of sin. It's the reminder that sin has a cost. Whenever you are walking in the woods and you step on a thorn, that's the physical reminder that sin has a cost. And when you sit down with someone you love and they talk about the pain they're going through and some fractured relationship that they brought upon themselves, that's the cost of sin right before our eyes. The cost of sin's greatest price was Jesus hanging on a cross. But the cost of sin that we experience every single day is the pain from an earth that is showing us exactly what sin does to it. And with these physical effects of sin sabotaging us and, and keeping us disconnected from God, the real question is, how do we may remain connected? If sin is sabotaging me, meaning that it wants to see me fail, then how do I overcome that and stay connected? I'm just going to give you one answer today. Not three different points, one answer. And this is going to meet you wherever you are. Even if you say, I don't even know what you're talking about in this relationship with God. This is going to meet you where you are. Or you may go, I've been saved 75 years and, and I'm struggling from time to time. This is your answer. The way that we remain connected to God when sin sabotages us and wants us to be disconnected is to surrender for real. I'm talking about a for real surrender. Not some empty prayer that you cast out at the, at the altar. Not some false hope that you have tried to obtain through some actions you've done on your own. I'm talking about a real, genuine surrender is how we connect again with God when sin is trying to sabotage us. Amen. Sin is so powerful because it plays on the suppressed pride that each one of us has. As a matter of fact, the entrance that it had into what we know is the pride of Satan. And immediately when Satan went into the garden, he prayed on the suppressed pride that Eve had. Oh, God doesn't want you to know all this because you're going to become like him. And that temptation of power and prestige and knowledge, when he played on that pride, was the thing that caused her to give way. And that's what sin does to us. It plays on the suppressed pride that each and every one of us has. Every single one of us, we want more money, we want more relationships, we want more joy, we want more power, we want more prestige. And the very thing sin does is play on the pride associated with each one of those. We may manipulate things at our job because we want more power, we want more money, and or we want more prestige. We may pursue an addiction because of this false joy that it brings in our life. We may stab someone in the back if it means that I get more relationships out of it. Every single one of us want more. And if you say that oh, that's not me, then 
you're already deceiving yourself. Every one of us want more. doesn't mean that you want what I have. I may want one area more than you, but every one of us want more of all these things. And so sin appeals to the pride in our life, and, and then we suffer the physical effects of that. In order to overcome, we must surrender for real. Paul writes in Romans 6, 11 through 14, So you also must consider yourself dead in sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin does not reign in your life if you have truly surrendered to God. Doesn't mean that we don't sin. If you remember the first week we talked about the different sins that we have, there's three of them. And every one of us are born with inherent sin, meaning that our natural disposition is to do wrong. We can't help it, right? That's just the natural disposition of who we are as a human. Um, but what, what it's talking about is sin doesn't reign my life, meaning that all the decisions I make aren't made out of sin guiding my path. And if we've surrendered to God, that's true. Because we find in surrender to God in the place of all the, na the nasty effects of sin in our life is the replacement of the fruit of the Spirit. And love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and long-suffering and mercy and gentleness and kindness, all these are the things that now we embody. And those guide our decisions. Pride doesn't guide me any longer because God has overcome those things in me through my surrender. It does not mean that we don't sin. Surrender is a battle term. And if you've ever watched a movie on, on, on some kind of war or also you may read it or you may have went through it, you know that this term means that an opposing army surrenders, that they lay down their arms, their weapons, they lay it all down, and the winners take control of them from then on. That's what surrender is. Surrendering to God works the same way. God has a plan for each and every one of our lives, and surrendering to Him means we set aside our own plans and eagerly seek His first. The good news is that God's plan for us is always in our best interest, unlike our own plans that often lead to destruction. When people say, I'm just going to follow my heart, I go, don't do that. The Bible tells us your heart is evil above all things. That's why we're to follow the desires of God, because he never leads us wrong. Our Lord is wise, and he's the beneficial victor. He conquers us to bless us. I want to tell you a story. It's, um, it's an allegorical story, which means it's filled with metaphors, um, called The Holy War by one of our early church fathers, John Bunyan, in the, in the 1600s. And it's about a city called Mansoul. See the metaphor there? Mansoul, M-A-N-S-O-U-L. That is overtaken by an evil man named Diabolus. In this story, there's three main characters in the city. There's a mayor, his name is Understanding, there's a town recorder whose name is Conscience. And there's another man who's prominent in the story named Lord Will Be Will. In the city, there's these three esteemed men who, by admitting Diabolus into the city, lost their previous authority. The eyes of understanding, the mayor, are hidden from the light. Conscience, 
the recorder has become a madman at times sinning and at other times condemning the sin of the city. But worst of all is Lord will be will, whose desire has been completely changed from serving his true Lord to serving Diabolus. And with the fall of these three, for Mansoul to turn back the Shaddai of their own free will is impossible. Salvation can only come by the victory of Emmanuel. And so this novel tells the story of this town, Mansoul, which is Mansoul. Though this town is perfect and bears the image of Shaddai, it is deceived to rebel and throw off its gracious rule, replacing it instead with the rule of Diabolus. And though man's soul has rejected the kingship of Shaddai, he sends his son, Emmanuel, to reclaim it. And Prince Emmanuel besieges the city of, of Mansoul to wrest it from his power of Diabolus. Unfortunately, the, cities of, the citizens of Mansoul are blindly committed to Diabolus and fight against Emmanuel to their own detriment. The metaphor of this is how the fall and evil has entered into our world. And many times when we sin, it's us fighting against the one who wants to deliver us from the very thing we're struggling with. That God has such a compassion and love for us that he sent his son to die on a cross that we would have power over sin and instead sin so easily overcomes us. And so the God who wants to redeem us back to him is fighting a war with those who want him to redeem us but we don't know how. And the sabotage of sin has blinded us to everything that's taken place. Today, Christian or not, there, there must be a surrender to Jesus. Sin fights against the one who is there to rescue us from the pain and sabotage of our life. And, and in return, all that is expected of us is surrender and dependency on the one who saved us. Isn't that great? That, that, the, that the expectation of someone who's given so much to deliver us is nothing more than just be dependent upon me. And the proof in the character of that person is the fact that they could deliver me from the very thing I couldn't deliver myself from. You know, I read this beautiful thing as I was discussing God one day with somebody, and it's hard to understand God. But I read this beautiful quote that said, what makes God who he is is that we cannot explain him. Because if we could, he would be just another man. And so we look at what takes place in our life and we realize the one who wants to save us is the only one who can save us. And if he can save me from what I can't defend myself from, he is the one that I should be dependent upon. And the great thing, the only thing he wants from me in return is dependency upon him. There, there are different levels of surrender, all of which affect our relationship with God. Initial surrender to the drawing of the Holy Spirit leads to salvation. If you have ever had that transformation in your life, that initial surrender is what I'm talking about now. It's when we let go of our own attempts to earn God's favor and rely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it's in that moment we become what the Bible refers to us as, as a child of God. Uh, but there's times of greater surrender during a Christian's life that brings a deeper intimacy with God and a greater power and service. And the more areas of our life we surrender to God, the more room there is for the filling of the Holy Spirit in our life. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we begin to exhibit His traits. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit through a surrender to God, we stop our own self-worshipping nature, and it's replaced with that that resembles Christ. So we all go through these surrendering moments. This morning, maybe you're here and you go, no, no, my surrender has to do 
with what I want to hold on to. Not that initial surrender. I'm talking to you if you've given your life to Christ. You go, I'm so tired of fighting these battles. Why do I feel so defeated? Why do I feel like I'm always on the losing end? And my follow-up question to you would be, what are you still holding on to in your life? And it's not a question that I ask you as someone standing higher than you. The reality is I face that every single day because I have my own shortcomings. And I struggle immensely in areas that I don't understand why. And when I allow God to truly examine me and I don't try to get in the way of it, I realize that I'm holding on to some things that I really should let go of. And when I hold on to them, I remove room for him to work within my life. See, the lack of surrender sabotages my life. The physical pain is the unwillingness to allow God to lead me and guide me in those areas. The surrender leads to a loss of passion. And maybe that's the position that you're in today. I've often looked back at when I first was, when I first surrendered my life to Christ, and I go, man, what I wouldn't give to be that passionate again. But I find the reason I am not there in my passion is because I'm not there in my surrender. That passion was accompanied by a surrender of my life. And when God took hold of my life, I began to plug some things back in. All right, God, cool, you're in control. Just let me put this right back here. I, I need to still hold on to that. And well, let me hold on to this. What happens is I begin to drown out the voice of God and replace for my own selfish desires. And the sabotage of sin in my life has caused me now to lose passion for my creator. But the way we regain passion back in our life is that we get to know God. Because to know him is to know what love truly is. John tells us that God is love. If we want to know what real love is, it's knowing God. And the more we get to know God, the more we realize how much, how much he's done for us, how great he is for us, and the more we see that, the greater our passion builds up for him. And we begin to read our word more, we begin to see the characteristics of God and go, that's why I love him. And when we begin to talk to him in communication through prayer, and God begins to reveal things to us, and we go, that's why I love him. And the other thing that happens is the closer I get to God, the more I see myself. And the more I see myself, I realize how wretched of a person I am. And I let go of things. I can't be in fellowship with a holy God with the unholy things that I'm holding on to. And God begins to work inside of us. And we surrender more, and he fills more space. And we surrender more, and he fills more space. And the passion inside of us is at, an area, is at a level that we've never experienced before. But it's all about surrender. If we want God to move more in our lives, then it starts with the surrender inside of us. I look at myself and say, apart from him, I'm nothing. But with him, I can do all things. Surrender in our lives. The other surrender I want to talk about in closing is that initial surrender. And that may be the very position that you're in today. The pain of failure has consumed your life. It seems like every relationship you touch begins to break. And every decision you make seems to be the wrong one. And the physical effects of sin has begun to cripple your life. But today is the call to surrender in your life. A man named Bruce Larson Tell us how he helped people struggling to surrender their lives to Christ. 
He wrote, for many years I worked in New York City and counseled at my office any number of people who were wrestling with this yes or no decision of surrender. Often I would suggest they walk with me from my office to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who, with all his muscles straining, is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is, the most powerful built man in the world, and he can barely stand under the burden of the world. Now that's one way to live, he would point out to those who were, who were walking with him, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now come across the street with me. And on the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old. With no effort, he's holding the world in one hand. He said, my point was illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders. Or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, the whole world. The question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to continue to try to overcome this sabotage of sin all by myself? Or do I want to surrender and let the creator of this world manage the life he created for you? The evaluation you have to have as you realize the exact plays that Satan is calling, you have to go, do I want to continue to do like this? Do I want the defense to beat me every time I try to go on offense? Or... Do I want to let go, let God, and let him guide me the way he wants me to go? The beautiful thing of salvation is that it requires a step on our part, that we have to surrender first. And over and over again throughout the gospel, we find when we surrender, there's a God that comes running to our rescue. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And we find this beautiful picture of a father who waited for his son to surrender back to him. He knew things were bad. He knew his son wasn't doing well. He wanted him to surrender to him. And the moment he could see him coming down the road, he'd done something that no Jewish man would ever do. He picked up his garment and began to run. And though everybody probably judged him, looking at him running, go, why would he ever do this? It's because we find when we surrender to God, no matter what people think, he comes running to our rescue. It doesn't matter if it's your initial surrender or if you go, I'm holding on to some things that i got to let go of. Whenever we say, God, I give up, we lay our weapons down and he comes running to our rescue. And he conquers us to bless us because he knows things that are better for us. Let's pray, God, thank you this morning for your love, your grace, your mercy. God, that you give to us things that we don't deserve, things that we shouldn't even have our hands on, but you love us and entrust us with those things. But sin is sabotaging our lives. And today we stand here like Paul and cry out, I need your help. Lord, I pray for each and every person here. God, I pray first for the Christian here who says, I just got to keep holding on to this. But God, they're losing their passion in you. God, they're losing their desire to serve you. And, and they're sitting there dying spiritually. But I pray this morning that you would reveal those things to them. God, that as they're seeking you in prayer this morning, they would see those areas that they are holding on to that you want them to let go and surrender to you. God, this morning they could experience what true transformation through our struggles looks like. And God, I pray for the person here this morning who's never initially surrendered their life to you. 
God, they've tried to bear the weight of the world on their shoulders and all they've found along the way is failure. But we see you pictured as a loving father just waiting for our call to wait for our surrender. And this morning, God, if there's anyone here who has yet to make that call, that surrender, Lord, I pray that you would begin to work in their hearts right now. And they would make that first powerful step of surrender towards you, knowing that you will run and meet them where they are. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you that chance this morning. If you're here, regardless if you're a Christian or not, if you're here and you say surrender is the thing I struggle with, but i got to overcome what the enemy has laid out in front of me, I want to invite you to the altar this morning to lay it down. Lay down your weapons, lay down all the things that you think you're in control of, and let God, the creator of you and the creator of his plans for you, take control of your life. And let him be the one who leads you. This morning, I want you to know the altar is open for the next couple of minutes for you to come and hit your face and bow before God and allow him to sabotage you in a mighty way.